and welcome to the art world. What if? What if? What if? What if? What What if? What if? What if? Wait, wait, but what if it isn't? <laughs> You're joining us today from Maryland, close to DC. We're visiting Glenstone Museum, one of the most ambitious private institutions in America. We're talking to Emily Rails, its co-founder, chief curator and director. As she takes us on a tour of the museum, its grounds, and tells us all about the vision she has for the institution. So we just passed through the arrival hall. And then once you come through, we arrive at the bridge. And this is kind of a threshold between the commotion of the outside world and entering this kind of sacred precinct of art, architecture, and nature. It's about a five to seven minute walk. We intentionally made it this length so that people could really take the time to calm their senses and notice all the different sounds, textures, and occasionally get a peek of an artwork off in the distance. So off to our left is Jeff Koons's Split Rocker. We plant that creature every May with 29,000 individual flowers. Wow. <laughs> so now we're approaching the pavilions. We're approaching the pavilions. They were inspired by a number of different architectural precedents like San Gimignano Hill Towns. This is an unfolding experience. You'll get different views as you make your way through the landscape and then finally get up close. And that's one way that we keep you in the moment. Right. Very present. <laughs> so welcome to the pavilions at Glenstone. This is the primary space where we show art and was conceived to be an unhurried and very calming experience. So, shall we go down the okay. steps? <laughs> and here's also the first hint that this is not a series of individual buildings, but one that's interconnected. thank you so much for for having me normally I say thank you so much for joining me but you're hosting me here at Glenstone today it's been a pleasure I've loved walking through with you and showing you Glenstone through new eyes I always say I love bringing new people here because I can appreciate what we've built from the very beginning walking around with you so many people have stopped you and said you know thank you for this space people seem to feel a real connection with it how does that feel to you to have the public interact with it in such a personal way I am so happy when people come up to me. It just makes it all worthwhile. We work very hard to create this experience, and it's been many, many years of thinking, of trying things out, of experimentation, and that just makes it all worth it when someone gets a really meaningful experience when they come here. As far as ownership, I don't really feel like I own this place. I'm just a steward. I dreamed it into existence with Mitch, and my hope is that it continues and sustains itself because people care enough about what we've built and people care enough about the artists that they will keep it going. Do you have a favorite room? Are you allowed favorites? No. <laughs> <laughs> the one coming up is probably in my top three. I'll, I'll give you that. Okay. This, is, this is like one of my favorites. I can't say that there's one. 
This is our Cy Twombly sculpture room. This is beautiful. I don't think I've ever seen so many Twombly sculptures together. Yeah, no, they're, they're very um, uh, infrequently on view. So this is in the top three, okay. Mm-hmm. Have we seen the other two? Well, one of them is probably our Richard Serra Pavilion. I can imagine. Can, can I just stop to say, yes. you did a fantastic job. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is this your first time no, visiting? No. No. no are you... I want to come back when the lilies are blooming. Yes. Oh, very soon. Yeah. Probably next month. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank but you. Thank you. Glenstone is fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Enjoy the rest of it. Why did you want to create your own institution? Well, why create an institution at all? Or if you were going to create an institution, why not work with an existing institution? What about you thought, I have a vision? So it it would have been a lot easier, of course, just to partner with an institution. We have wonderful institutions in Washington. I have affiliations with many other museums in New York. And I have to be honest that that was never on the table. Mitch and I had a very distinct vision to create an experience, not just a collection, but an experience that's rooted in actual placemaking and this idea that nature and art and architecture come together to create a a whole new sensory experience. The other thing is that we really love Maryland. Mitch is born and raised in this area. There's a lot of museums in urban areas, and we thought, well, why not bring high-class museum experience and world-class artworks to people in suburban Maryland? Why not? This is as good a place as Bentonville, Arkansas, to make a reference to Crystal Bridges, and and we really admire what Alice Walton has done over there, too. You just mentioned Crystal Bridges. Mm -hmm. Were there other museums you looked towards? Which are the museums that were formative to you growing up, but also in thinking about this? I didn't really visit that many museums growing up. This is something I came to a little bit later in life. I took an art history course by accident my first year in in university and fell madly in love with the subject. I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, so about as far away from the Met as (laughs) you can imagine. So museums that we looked at very closely, there are a few. So the Louisiana Museum right outside of Copenhagen in Denmark was one that we modeled ourselves after the movement between interior and exterior, the outdoor sculpture, the sublime, and also the feeling you get at the Louisiana. You see people of all ages there. It's really a part of the fabric of their lives. When we first visited Copenhagen to make this pilgrimage to Louisiana, we checked in at our hotel, and the very nice man behind the counter said, oh, what brings you to Copenhagen? We said, oh, we're going to visit the Louisiana Museum. Oh, the Louisiana. I've been going there since I was a little child. There's this wonderful hill that me and my mates would roll down. We thought, oh, that's so lovely that he has this fond memory, not of a particular Giacometti that struck him, but the sense of community and, and fun. So we thought... Imagine if we could build something that people felt they could do and be themselves and feel like they belong there. We also studied very closely the Menil. Again, it's a campus with multiple buildings. And then the third museum that was formative for us was the Bayeler in Switzerland, in, mm. in Basel. Aesthetically, I can see Yes, that. yes, exactly. 
you said you you weren't really one of those kids who was going to museums, wasn't thinking about art. It sounds like you had this formative experience as a student. Mm-hmm. How quickly did that accelerate? Because I know that before Glenstone, you interned at the Guggenheim, you worked at Barbara Gladstone, you worked at JJ Lally and Co Gallery in New York. So you quickly geared your life towards art. I did. I did. So my entry into art was very intellectual. I remember a professor telling me, you know, it is art history, but it's more history than it is art. And I love the way that art was a reflection of the social and political and economic conditions of the time. And I became really enamored with that way of looking at history. But it wasn't until I had hands-on experience with making an exhibition that it really became my first love. When I worked at the Guggenheim Museum, I took some time off my senior year against my parents' wishes. <laughs> and I, I skipped a semester so that I could finish up this exhibition on Chinese art. It was this massive show, 5,000 years of Chinese art, which is a show you could not do in 2023, by the way. It just wouldn't be possible because to try to collapse all that time into an exhibition is way too ambitious. But it was the first time that many of these artifacts had been seen outside of mainland China. So it was a landmark show. I just loved being around the objects, learning about them, being in a space that was always thinking about the public. I felt like it was suddenly meaningful, you know, all this kind of studying I was doing. It's only meaningful when someone is in front of this extraordinary bronze ritual vessel from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and marveling at the technique, this sense of awe when you're in the presence of something really special was something that I knew I had to make a part of my life. You also specialized in Chinese antiquities at JJ Lally. But this collection is mostly Western artists. When did you make that shift? So I made the 180-degree shift because I I have Chinese heritage, and a lot of these objects and artifacts are tomb goods, tomb artifacts. Something in me just felt fundamentally uncomfortable with the notion that these things were coming up from burial grounds and finding their way to the market and being sold to American and European collections. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) It felt like I was turning my back on part of my, my history, and I wasn't being responsible with these objects. So... I decided that I really wanted to work with artists. Um, It's something that I always wanted to do, but never had the experience to do. And so I decided to look for a job in the contemporary art world, completely different. So I started out working at basically the front desk at Gladstone Gallery as a registrar. After having managed a gallery in Midtown, I took a pay cut to do that and learned everything about how to run a gallery, how to get things shipped from one place to another, what crating is required for certain kinds of paintings, how to negotiate shipping rates, all of it. So I I really cut my teeth at Barbara's. I love that because I feel like when people think about contemporary art galleries, they have no real sense of what it is to actually work inside one, which is a pretty crazy experience usually because they're small businesses with enormous international reach. I do remember what you mean because I was front desk too once. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been in the trenches. (laughs) So 
how did you go from Gladstone to here? How did you get the confidence yourself to be like, I am going to start working with artists and I'm going to follow my vision? Luckily, Barbara had enough confidence in my skills to let me start writing press releases. I had the opportunity to work with artists within her stable, and that was really eye-opening. One of the things that I will never forget was working with Thomas Hirshhorn on this really ambitious exhibition where he essentially transformed the entire gallery into this cave. You didn't recognize the gallery at all. And I remember thinking, this is the kind of transformative experience that you get from art that needs to happen more. And I said to Barbara, this is so life-changing for me. I want to do this when it comes time for me to strike out on my own. And she said, well, it's not easy. <laughs> for a lot of reasons, you know, that idea of Thomas Hirshhorn's madness and his vision has never quite left me. And because Mitch had a lot of confidence in my curatorial instincts, he gave me the platform to do some of these things that we just saw. For example, Bob Gober's Room 4. The reason why our guide is here is that people will walk right past and not know <laughs> that there's something inside there. Right. It's kind of a secret passage. But this door... Uh, sort of airport chic. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but this is a very utilitarian door. And when we found it, he said it's not banged up enough. So he had the construction workers use it and slam it and age it for about eight months. <laughs> So that is like, that's Bob Gober in a nutshell. But let's go in. Let's go in. Thank you. The room within a room with a hand-painted mural with running water coming through the museum, which any person who runs any museum would tell you, you never want running water in a gallery space where there are objects, uh, very fragile objects on view that could be damaged. But we did it anyway. That's been kind of my modus operandi, is listen to the artist, do everything you can to see it to completion, and your audience will get a much more meaningful experience. What if you could commission any artist now? You must have wish lists. Well, we have some irons in the fire already, so I'll share with you just one of them because it is slightly a little bit more further along than, than others, but we are working with Arthur Jaffa on something very special, and I can't say any more about it because it's early stages, but he is thinking through a permanent installation of his work here at Glenstone. Oh, wow. He's a brilliant artist. I think he's one of the most interesting artists that's emerged in the last call it 10 years for sure I agree and I was looking at his work actually in LA the other week and it really disturbed me in a way that I haven't been able to shake but I think his work does that it goes to those places where many artists or many people wouldn't dare go to having been kind of on the margins of the art world for so long because he was a cinematographer he could you know see what was happening but he wasn't quite in it so in a way he has a sort of freedom to experiment. It's sort of like the art world needs him more than he needs the art world. Yeah. 
I think that's right. <laughs> Which is probably true of most artists. Yeah. yeah. So I've never been to Glenstone before. I've seen it on other people's photographs. I've written about it probably. I've had an idea of what it would be to be in this space. But the thing that strikes me in moving through it with you this morning is that it's much more horizontal than I imagined, partly because it's human scale, because you walk around it, partly because of the horizontal nature of the architecture and the concrete blocks. They're not vertiginous. Also, you have these huge panoramas, these big horizontal vistas sweeping out from, for example, the Martin Puria room where you look across at the hills. But then walking around it, it sort of moved beyond being filmic and I realised it was a little bit more like the theatre, like you're walking into a story that has just taken place or is about to take place. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. Ready for this? Not really. I'm never really ready for Michael Heiser. (laughs) There's real life safety... Yeah. Concerns. I can only ever nervously sidestep to the edge of Heiser's. Yeah. <laughs> You're very brave. You're very brave. I've, normally people stay about yay far away. Oh, so great. You've given so much to the artist's visions and they're not connected and there's not a forced connection between them either. And I'm not sure that I felt like I'm at the theater in a museum before in that way. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I've not thought about it in those terms either, but it it certainly makes sense. And it's because we make the artist's vision the most important priority. And so each room has its individual character. The connections are all but missing. They're not there. Typically what curators do is they draw connections. But I intentionally pulled that back because it's my view that the artist's vision and story and narrative should supersede the curatorial conceit that brings it all together. Our job here at Glenstone is to let the artist speak and then get out of the way. So you'll see that there's no didactics on the wall either. We don't dictate what a visitor may think or however they want to interpret a work of art. Instead, we have guides, and those are the young people and the very friendly staffers who are stationed at every single room. And I really think that interpersonal exchange with strangers doesn't happen very often in museums, but there's something very special about it. We encourage it. You're coming here as our guest and we want to have a conversation with you. We're not going to tell you what to think. We're not going to force you to love it. Feel free to hate it, but let's talk about it. I want to talk to you a little bit about audience, because this is something that comes up over and over again around Glenstone, is it's free admission, spaces are reserved, and that's because you have a purposeful intention to give people space. And you wrote an article during COVID talking about that space that museums had been forced into with social distancing, saying that for you, you could say that there were some benefits to that sort of social distance. And you wrote that um, the expansion of the pavilions in 2018 increased our total indoor exhibition space from 9,000 to 59,000 square feet, on par with that of the Broad in downtown Los Angeles and the Whitney Museum of Art, of, and the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. 
But while The Broad and The Whitney each saw around 1 million visitors in 2019, we hosted one-tenth of that number in our first year of operation. The fact that Glenstone is situated in a quiet exurb of Washington, D.C. only partially explains the magnitude of the disparity. The real reason is that the experience we have developed for visitors is slow, quiet, and contemplative by nature. And you commissioned a lot of studies about the space that people needed to comfortably look at a work of art. What did you find out? Well, most museums aren't going to commission studies like this because they're not concerned about density. How we came up with these numbers was quite easy. You just looked at the annual attendance of a place like the Guggenheim. You calculate the number of square feet available for the public to occupy, and then you just figure it out. And we used a very kind of unscientific method of just going there, seeing how it felt, and then coming back here and feeling what it felt like in the space when you allocated 300 square feet per visitor. And that felt good. That felt like you weren't being rushed around. It felt like you could take your time and sit with something for as long as you wanted. And we're still playing with it. It reminds me of something I read in the New York Times. You and Mitch were interviewed and they wrote, listening to you talk about the creation of Glenstone is a bit like hearing two Harvard MBAs discuss how they built a Fortune 500 company. Mitch said, we've been very deliberate. We wrote a strategic plan. We did a lot of research. You can bring a business sensibility to the equation. In what other ways have you brought that business sensibility to the equation? We're very data-driven. So not simply square footage and number of people and number of staff people who work here, but it's down to tracing how our collecting patterns have evolved over the years. So In the beginning, there was no mechanism for seeing how many male artists versus how many female artists were in the collection. Now, every couple of months, we can look at a snapshot of exactly that. So how many artists identify as female, how many identify as male, how many non-binary artists, how many artists of color. And we look at how those shift over time. You can look at it in totality. So we have about 30% women artists in the collection. We take a very analytical approach to looking at the collection and how it breaks down demographically. We have visitor metrics. We have collection metrics. We track staff turnover. And so we are very driven by those numbers. And we aim to exceed our previous achievements year over year. What I mean by that in terms of the collection is, of course, we want a more diverse group of artists in the collection, but that doesn't happen overnight. And so it's incremental change. We want to see that incremental change sustain itself. Mm -hmm. And that's been a, a huge priority for us. Then the collection is also different from the program. So the percentage of women artists on view, for example, is more than 50% currently. If you remember, we walked past... Kara Walker, Cecily Brown, Simone Lee, and then in the other building, Rebecca Quaitman. This is all very, very carefully orchestrated because it's important to us that we have enough women on view at any given point in time. Where do you look for, for, or are you just inventing your own set of best practices around that? How much do you share with other museum professionals? We are just inventing our own goals. Our goal is to have at least 35% work on view at any given point in time by women artists and at least a quarter of the works on view by artists of color. We've exceeded those numbers. And what that tells me is that we can raise the bar. 
you know, going forward. I love the idea of sharing our numbers with colleagues in the field. Well, it's also because you can shape it more easily because you're directly funding the acquisitions. Whereas with museums, what we've noticed is that a lot of the acquisition budgets are dwarfed by the gifts. And so they can't outspend what the donors are giving them. So this is our Bryce Martin commission painting. We said, if you were to make your Rothko Chapel, what would you make? That was the idea behind this. This is a five-year product here. Wow. And it's called the Moss Sutra and the Four Seasons. So spring, summer, autumn, and winter with a central panel that has all these mossy colors. And if you walk up to it and you see the panels in raking light, you can see the, the gestures. Underneath. Underneath, yeah. It's like lace. Mm-hmm. We were just on attendance, and I want to talk a little bit more about that because it's become the main metric of success in the field. Museums have been actively striving and proving their worth through the number of visitors they get through the door. Glenstone was criticized in around 2015 during the Senate Finance Committee when 11 private museums were asked about admission fees, opening hours, lending policies, and visitor numbers. And the chairman's committee, the Republican Senator Orrin Hatch, was determined to find out whether, quote, any of them provide limited benefits to the public whilst enabling donors to reap substantial tax advantages. Glenstone doesn't charge admission, it lends its work to other institutions, and it has around 100,000 visitors a year. But the focus of the committee on the volume of visitors seems really interesting to me in terms of the public perception of the role of a museum, because on the one hand, access for all is a great ambition. On the other hand, people can become more conservative because they're trying to get the bums through the seats and you see less risk-taking. But what do you think of that? Is attendance the metric of success? I know you're data-driven. How do you view your own success? Clearly, we don't think it's the key metric for success. We never, ever wanted to be attendance-driven. It's this notion of quality over quantity. If you can have a more meaningful engagement for an individual visitor with the art on view then isn't that better than having 50 people come through and not be terribly engaged or not remember what they saw or what encounters they had? I think attendance is an easy thing to latch onto because it's bodies, it's throughput, but we are not a stadium. We're not you know, trying to sell out all the seats. It's a very, very intimate experience to be in front of an artwork. I mean, those can be transformative experiences, things that you remember forever. So I think looking at simply attendance is too one-dimensional. There's this book that we often cite, which is Jim Collins' Good to Great. It's a business book and talks about how certain businesses become good and others are able to rise above and become great. This author did all these case studies of different businesses and drew out certain qualities that he felt were essential to building great companies. He then wrote a supplement for the social sectors. The argument that Jim Collins makes in this book is you can use other metrics. So for the symphony, it's how many standing ovations you get. It's how many testimonials you get from people who just feel so compelled to share how great their experience is that they will write two pages in their visitor exit survey, which we get on a regular basis, by the way. 
we have a broad enough audience to serve that there can be different flavors of museums. And we're just a very slow and contemplative and quiet and intimate flavor of a museum that some people really find valuable. This is room seven. Again, notice the slight incline. Mm -hmm. Every room has a slightly different entrance. And this is the other bench that Martin Currier designed oh, for that's us. Beautiful. The entire room is really about the bench and the view. And this is our reading library, our place to take a pause, cleanse the palate, mm -hmm. because art can be a lot to take in. And so I hope you'll sit down. It's really beautiful. So beautiful. You donated the um, sculpture by Katerina Fritsch of the bright blue rooster to the National Gallery of Art. You have given the Artist in Residence program at the Studio Museum an endowment gift of around $10 million, which provides a base of funding in perpetuity. You've also made lots of loans from your collection. How important is it for you to be uh, in that constellation? More and more important, to be honest. Glenstone Museum, the place and the program, we've built now. And it has its own reputation, and we have our goals, and it feels like we're well on our way to becoming a true, full-fledged institution. So over the next couple of years, I'm really turning my attention to the philanthropy side of the foundation. We also just recently helped to build an endowment for the Triple Ott Foundation, which is the foundation that owns and operates Michael Heiser's city in Nevada. Which is a great example of a work with different attendance <laughs> metrics. <I think>. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All of those things are examples of what you can expect to come in the future from Glenstone, because a large part of my attention, certainly, and, and Mitch's also, will be to establish our philanthropic parameters going forward and long after we're gone as well. This is going to be a major part of Glenstone, the foundation, the museum being only one of those things. How are you thinking about approaching that philanthropy? I know you're very research-driven. Well, I love this particular stage in brainstorming and in dreaming because there's so many ways to look at this. You could talk to academic institutions and ask, you know, is there truly a crisis in the humanities where students are increasingly turning their backs on things like English and art and women's studies or whatnot in favor of the STEM fields? That is happening across all universities in the U.S. And so why is that? Because Young people feel that they need hard science and engineering backgrounds in order to thrive in today's economy and tomorrow's economy. And I think that is a big, huge problem. <laughs> and how do we turn the tide? How do we reinforce the fact that the humanities and culture, and then drilling it down even more, art is essential to creating complete individuals that value different things and the thing that I think is the most important about art is that it gives you license to dream. Artists are showing us all the time that they can think of spectacular visions, and that is permission for a teenager to also dream big. 
Art is so out there. It's so otherworldly. And so we need these connectors, these community-building type of activities in order to progress as a society and remain humane. We've gone through just a horrible time where basically all nuance is being eliminated in our public discourse. People are becoming more entrenched in their opinions. There's more polarization across the political spectrum. If people on the left and the right can't talk to one another out there in the world, I say, well, at least have conversations within the halls of the museum. I'm often encouraging just our staff to have uncomfortable conversations because if you can't do it in a school, if you can't do it in a museum, then there's no hope (laughs) for any of us. I guess that is a big what if. Like, what if you could help bring about change? I guess that's what you're grappling with. You are in a position to help bring about change and you're brainstorming where best to to focus that. Right. And I think using art as a vehicle for greater civility in our public conversation is something that I'm thinking about. Also listening to artists who have made social justice a primary part of their practice is another thing I want to explore. Artists like Latoya Ruby Frazier, for whom her art practice and the work she does in communities is one and the same. I'm thinking through putting together an advisory board of people just like that, who have given themselves permission to think much more broadly about the art world, because the art world is very small. You know, in the end, we, you know, the the, the listeners of this podcast, we all know each other. (laughs) And what I would love to see is our great work be appreciated by a much bigger population, a much bigger demographic, people from different socio-political, socio-economic realities. I will cleave to this idea until I die that I think you don't need a PhD to appreciate art. I don't even think you need much of an education to appreciate art yet, If you look at our visitor surveys, most of them have had higher education. Most of them are in their 50s and 60s. So we have a lot of work to do as museums, as art practitioners, to expand our audience. And I'm not even saying like what every other museum says, which is, let's make sure our audiences are younger. Like we're always going after the 20-somethings. Every single museum is opening up happy hour or Friday night free admission because they want to go after this demographic. I want to say, well, what about the grandmothers, like my mom's age? She lives in this community where most people speak English as a second language. Why don't those people come? Also, because they don't feel like they're welcome. This is not their place. So there's a lot of inroads I think we must make in order to make art relevant in the future. It's simply not relevant to the functioning of the broader society right now. That's our fault. This is the one where I ask people, what's odd about this sculpture? Oh, it's lower than it. It's lower on the inside. Yeah, than the ground. Mm -hmm. Just by two inches. It's funny, isn't it? That two inches can be vertiginous. Yes. I know you spoke with Rashida Bombray recently. Yes. Here. Hello. 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 Simone Lee in all her glory here. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Very confrontational. Yeah. And the, the missing face really 
confuses people sometimes. You also mentioned different socioeconomic backgrounds and an interesting thing about both you and Mitch that you wrote in your giving pledge that you've made is that both of you come from modest middle-class backgrounds. Your grandparents left China for Taiwan during the Civil War in 1949. Your parents attended graduate school in the US and settled in Canada. Mitch's parents were the children of immigrants. His father grew up in the Hebrew orphan asylum in New York during the Great Depression. He was a self-made businessman. How much does that shape your thinking? It is always front of mind, thinking about who we are able to recruit as staff here at the museum and keenly aware of the fact that the applicant pool is going to be a certain kind of socioeconomic background because, you know, you don't get into art to make money. (laughs) And one of the things that I spearheaded here very early on was something we called the Emerging Professionals Program. And what it is, is a two-year stint at Glenstone geared towards kids who are right out of college or grad school. And it's a full-time job with benefits. And if you came of age in the New York art world in the early aughts like I did, that was unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. If you wanted a job in the art world, you basically had to do it for free or you had to live on barely livable salary. There are ways to crack this. We start with what we can control, which is who we can attract as workers here. And it's been great. It's been great to to work with these young people. You've taken part in the Giving Pledge. Can you explain that for people who don't know what it is? The Giving Pledge is a group of people who have declared publicly that they will be giving the bulk of their wealth away during their lifetimes. They want to devote a lot of time to thinking about their philanthropic goals while they're still alive and and well. So we joined the Giving Pledge. It was founded by Bill Gates, and one of the first pledgers was Warren Buffett. So many other people had followed suit. And because it was what we were doing anyway, it just simply made sense to sign up. And when you signed that pledge, you said you'd given more than $2 billion to support your two main philanthropic causes, which is the arts and education. I'm imagining that's more now because you recently gave $1.9 billion to the Glenstone Foundation in order to secure its legacy in perpetuity. Can you talk a little bit about why you did that and what your plans are for the foundation and sort of thinking about what perpetuity means? It means perpetuity. That's really what it means. And $1.9 billion isn't enough for perpetuity. So this is just the first tranche, I suppose, that we're sending to the foundation and more will follow with time. And It just felt like the right time. And by the way, there's a lot of very complicated financial calculations that go into when monies are transferred over. It just felt like the right time now. And maybe it's also the gesture that tells the world that we're not going back. That is our line in the sand. We have staked, and it is a true commitment. There is a kind of disconnect between the numbers and the way that art's talked about and the experience of art. The numbers facilitate the vision. And yet, I imagine that if you're the person facilitating the vision, that can feel frustrating sometimes. I I do want people to focus on the experience and focus on the artists and focus on the work. The numbers tend to be attention-grabbing, and I find that I spend a lot of time talking about the numbers, but that's not what I want to talk about, because it really doesn't matter. That just takes away from what we're trying to build here. 
Well, in a way, though, if you're saying it's one point, you know, these figures for the foundation, I'm not sure how much people understand the difference between the museum and the foundation and the work that the foundation is doing. And But I guess that's partly because you're still working through what that is. Right. When you think about the process of designing a building, there's conceptual design, there's engineering, there's working drawings, and then finally you're able to dig a hole in the ground and get to work. We are definitely in the conceptual design phase of what the foundation will become and what the philanthropy will be focused on. So you're right. It's, it's all very much happening in real time. And it's like drawing on a whiteboard. I can't give you more than just, you know, very, very uh, vague um, ideas of, of what we're thinking about right now. The show is a what if, and you are really in that phase of like, well, what if we did this? And what if we did that? How do you decide which of those what ifs is the one you're going to go with or one of the several that you will go with? So before the research comes the values and our values are immutable. So our values include art is essential to life. And sometimes when I say that to people, they're like, what does that even mean? No, food and water and shelter but I really believe that art is essential to our civilization and to humanity. And so putting that front and center and just saying it can be very radical to certain people. The other thing is long-term defines the way we think. So we're not intending to go out guns a-blazing and then sunsetting the foundation within 20 years. We want this to continue to be sustained in perpetuity. And we really mean that. But what we have to put in place in order for that to happen is we have to have very clear guidelines for our vision. We have to also be careful not to be too specific so that our successors aren't able to take calculated risks with how they interpret what we wanted. So it's a delicate balance of estate planning, basically, and creating the correct governance structure that allows for future visionaries to steward the foundation as they see fit. What's so interesting too is that you're thinking so far ahead of your own lifespan, which most people struggle with. This idea of our own mortality is, you know, the biggest problem we all face. Have you always thought that way? Always thought that way. Always. Mitch has always thought that way for his business. And so he brought that long-term view to the thinking about the museum and the foundation. And I just relate to it immediately because I truly feel that we are only custodians for these artworks. The artworks are going to outlive us. We just have to make sure nothing happens to it in the meantime while we're around, right? We always have to make sure that we remember that we are small in the span of time. We have to have the humility to know that we are just a phase in the lifespan of an artwork or a building or whatever. And we have to create the conditions that ensure the longevity of these things because they are so precious to who we are as a people. It seems odd to sort of think beyond one's lifespan, but it has become second nature because I do it all the time. <laughs> and also as a parent, right, it forces you to have that thinking all the time. This is the only place in the building where you can come out and be really in the pond on this platform here. 
So this is a very prominent selfie spot for our yes. visitors yeah. with the water in the background. That's so beautiful. Mm. This bench was designed by Martin Purrier. And if you know his sculpture, you start to see kind of familiar mm-hmm. lines curves. and curves. Yeah, you know frogs? There are frogs in here, yeah. I think I just saw a tadpole. Yeah, there are frogs. Um, in the summertime, mm-hmm. they stick themselves to the window, and they're just like... Oh, that's so great. It's really great, yeah. <laughs> you told the Times in 2013 that you had 800 works in your collection. It would double in your lifetimes. In 2018, you told the Times you had about 1,300 pieces. That was five years ago. I'm imagining we've grown. Where are you now? Do you have a figure? I'm, I'm sure you have a figure for the collection because you're so data-driven. We're nearly 2,000 works of art. Some of those works of art comprise multiple objects. So really all depends on how you're describing these things. Let's just suffice it to say that we've outgrown our art storage facility. <laughs> we don't seem to be slowing down at all because there are just so many great artists that are working today. And we've kind of filled in the historical period and we're really working with artists who are in mid-career at this moment. So it's new work coming out of the studio that we're looking at and acquiring for the collection. You said once that you don't buy an artist unless they've been working for 15 years. Yes. Is that still the case? Yes. That's just a solid rule. It's a solid rule with some notable exceptions. (laughs) (laughs) Rules are meant to be broken. Right, exactly. That's that flexibility you were talking about. You need to leave something for your successors to be able to use as a precedent. You're about to open in um, celebrating the fifth anniversary of Glenstone's expansion in 2018. You're going to present a major exhibition from your permanent collection work by more than 50 artists. It's not going to have an end date. I also thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about the show. Tell us about that. So the reason why there's no end date to that presentation is because we know from our visitors that they are pining for these works. Like they saw them at our opening in 2018. They saw the Jackson Pollocks. They saw the de Kooning painting, they saw Giacometti, they saw Rothko, and all of these sort of mid-century American masterworks. People ask us about them all the time. When are you going to put those back on view? When are you going to... So we're going to give them what they want <laughs> and do this permanent collection hang that will, of course, evolve over time depending on when things are requested for loan and also when we want to shake up the canon. I think this is a really fruitful arena to be doing things like that. For example, in 2018, when we opened this building, we hung a Jasper Johns painting, a flag painting next to Faith Ringgold's flag. And it was a juxtaposition that no one had ever done before. And what you notice from those kinds of encounters is that not only is the least well-known artist presenting well in the company of these bold-faced names, sometimes they surpass them. So that's really exciting. I'm really looking forward to opportunities to do that again. You also acquired the Lee Krasner that broke the record at auction. Yeah. Uh, the Eye is the first circle from 1960, which set a record, doubling the previous record for $11.7 million, which obviously in ordinary terms is a lot of money, but in the art market is not. And so these records are still so low. Do you see that when you're with your budgets of acquisitions that a lot of these female artists, for instance, their work is still undervalued? It's a fact of the market. Does it change the way we pursue them? Not really. Do I think about the market when I think about what to focus on for the collection? No. 
emphatically no. I really don't care what the market is supporting at the moment. The market may love something. It actually gives us the opportunity to do things that are less expected. You'll notice that I have a particular tendency and affinity for large, sprawling, difficult installations. It's because I feel like if we can't make that happen, then who can? Institutions have to take the risk of supporting these kinds of works that the market doesn't. Right. Because otherwise they'll never see the light of day. So what if you could advise other collectors thinking of creating something? Buy what you love. Simple, plain and simple. You might love something different from what I love. And also, don't buy something because it's really hot at, in the moment because the heat of the market is actually very illusory and ephemeral. Once the value of something comes down, you still have to love it. It's like your child, you know, they behave badly, they behave well, you still have to love them when they behave badly. <laughs> at the end of the day. It's like my mum said, I always love you, but I don't always like you. Yes. <laughs> yes. You have also the big Ellsworth Kelly show coming up, the centennial of his birth. And it's a major survey show opening in May. It's going to travel to Paris to the Fondation Louis Vuitton next spring. Then it's going to go to the fire station in Doha in Qatar that autumn, which will be the first time Ellsworth Kelly's been in that region. It's going to feature 70 works from your collection, as well as major museum lenders. So this seems to be another hinge moment in Glenstone's um, trajectory in which it's not just a show of works from the collection, and it is this big international collaboration. How did that come about, and is that something you see happening more as the museum evolves? I'm really proud of what we've been able to do. And this survey show will be exactly that. It will include not just the paintings that we know and love of Ellsworth, but also sculptures. He was a very prolific sculpture maker. He also made a lot of drawings. He made photographs, things that people haven't really associated with the artist's output before. We'll put them all together in one exhibition so you can see the entire range of what he was preoccupied with in his lifetime. Would you like to do more of those things, working in that way, in that constellation, in a different way? Because so often in the constellation, you're the supporting institution. In this, you're a partner institution in a different way. Is that something you'd like to do more of? Let's see how this goes. <laughs> I mean, it's been great so far, but we, we still have to get the show up and we have to execute. So I can't say one way or the other, but maybe we can talk in a year and, and I'll, I'll give you my answer then. <laughs> I feel like the registrar in yeah. the background is going to come in really handy here. Yeah, exactly. So you talked about the collection and it's growing and more than 2,000 works in there. And you also mentioned Crystal Bridges, which has the Building Bridges initiative of sharing collections. I know you loan a lot of your works and you've outgrown your storage and you've also said you don't want to keep things hidden in cellars. How do you think about where the collection goes? And, and do you ever do accession as well? We do think about where the collection will go. And this is why we rarely turn down loan requests. I learned recently that we're in the minority, <laughs> that a lot of collectors and institutions really deliberate a long, long time with every loan request and frequently turn them down. And I'm thinking, that's odd. Whenever I get a loan request, unless the thing is very fragile or it's up on view, I always approve it. I really believe that is our responsibility as a repository of these artworks to have them seen by the public wherever they may go. How we think about getting more of the collection 
seen is a difficult problem to solve because we are doing this traveling exhibition, but it's only going to be 70 works. And we don't like to rotate very frequently our temporary exhibitions here. We want people to have the opportunity to come over and over again and gain different perspectives every time they come. So a show is up here typically 12 to 18 months, which is a really long time. You wouldn't see that a typical institution. So would you grow? I mean, the last time you expanded was with the Sarah building in um, 2022 for the monumental sculpture Four Rounds Equal Weight Unequal Measure which is a third large-scale Sarah at Glenstone so you haven't expanded in a year or so would you do more expansions it's a question we're asking ourselves and there are many pros and cons the thing that we would get immediately is more space to show more art and that's a wonderful thing but it comes at a cost by that I mean it will expand the number of buildings here at Glenstone. We're already a big place. It's hard to get from one place to another. You have to walk. You need to take the time. There's something really beautiful about this notion that you can travel throughout Glenstone in one visit, and you can see everything. Now, it takes about three hours. If you want to build in time for a rest, then it's about four hours. Do we want to turn this into a place that you need six hours to see beginning to end. And I don't know the answer to that. I think it could be too much. Yeah. Do you deaccession works? We deaccession very, very rarely. And when we do, it's because we found an example that is better than the one that we already own. And I can't even remember the last time we did it, to be honest. It's been years. Do you have a personal collection that's separate to the Glenstone Foundation? Yes. And it's very small. And it's only because We sometimes like to live with some art, and because we can't hang the foundation art in our private home, we've left a few works in the personal collection just so that we can do that. But it's a handful. You're also on the board of a few different places and have been on different boards. We mentioned the Heiser which is the Triple Alt Foundation, which owns and operates City in Nevada. And you're also on the board of the Foundation for Contemporary Arts. Would you ever build a board similarly? Is that something you're thinking about? Yes, absolutely. It's going to be happening in the next five or ten years, I believe, maybe sooner. I increasingly think that we need a brain trust to help us think and imagine the future. And this is exciting to to bring in other perspectives and ideas to imagine what the future will look like for Glenstone. And one day I will step away from being Glenstone's director. I've loved doing it. I love the work. I come here every day. It doesn't feel like work. But it's time for other ideas and other leadership styles to make their mark on Glenstone. It's really exciting. What do you think about? Which boards do you think work well? Small ones. (laughs) Really, small ones, ones that are focused Mitch, who sits on the National Gallery Board, there's only five trustees, and it functions very, very well because everybody does a little bit of everything. It's not too unwieldy, not too many voices in the room. And we're so targeted, we know what we want, that each board member will have a particular set of skills to bring to the conversation. We're not going to be recruiting board members for funding, so it's truly just competencies that's the reason why we would keep it very small. It's also really interesting because it's kind of in line with um, some a kind of movement within certain 
quarters of museum world where there's this push to separate governance from funding. Is that a model you think works? Yes. I mean, once you bring funding into it, it muddies the waters because then you're beholden to the funding, the sources of funding. Governance should really be about the institutions and what's best for the institution, regardless of where the money's coming from in an ideal world. Which isn't the world we're in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm really excited to walk around the grounds of Glenstone and see more. But before I go, some what ifs. What is the what if that keeps you up at night? And what's the one that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? So I was thinking about this over the past few days, and there are so many, but the one that I would offer is what if children, students, made art as central to their learning as they did math and English? What if it became a priority for educators to put art at the forefront and use it as a vehicle for learning different subjects? social studies, for instance, or even sciences. What if we could truly integrate all these different disciplines rather than siloing them so that everyone comes out with a liberal arts education, which I credit as having given me the flexibility, the cognitive flexibility to take on all these things that I've done in my life. That's something that came up in an interview with Paul Chan. He talked about the way that art gives you survival skills. He said, it helps you fill in forms better, helps you recognize patterns better. It's a different kind of skill to learn, to think about art, live with art. Yeah, and it gives you critical thinking skills. It gives you abstract connection skills. I don't know how else to put it, but I think if you've been trained to think like an artist, you're more likely to make those neuro connections, those unlikely connections between certain ideas because we like to create taxonomies in our learning and in the facts and figures that we digest like oh oh, that's algebra that is physics that is statistics what have you but in truth that is just our way of trying to rationalize all the inputs that we receive as human beings art is one of the few disciplines that draws these complicated connections between all those different things sociology, anthropology, science. And we need more of that thinking in today's world where it's going to be an ideas economy. We can't make everything an assembly line. That kind of economy is dying out. It's not future-focused ever because it's only ever about what we already know. What if you could change one thing about the art world, what would it be? Make it less about the market and more about the artists. What if there was some seismic thing that happens at Glenstone and you could only put a blanket around one of the because I would say pick up and carry but you probably couldn't do that I know I asked you earlier if you had favorites you said no (laughs) but I'm I'm asking you the same question in a different way what would you save what if you could only save one which one my answer is not going to be a straight answer I'm going to say that I'm going to go to work on creating a protective dome in case there's some sort of catastrophic event that happens in our little neck of the woods in Maryland. And that dome is going to settle on top of the whole campus. And we can have this kind of like moon colony (laughs) and continue to live forever. I can't even think about this place going away. Which are the works that you just love to look at over and over again? We bought a Pierre Bonnard painting recently, and it's in the personal collection. It's in our bedroom. And it is ravishing. And it's one of those 
paintings that I can look at over and over again. I mean, I don't never want to have it leave, but it is going on loan somewhere <laughs> soon. <laughs> but it's outside the scope of the collection, so I can just admire it without limitation because I don't have to think about it being prioritized for any exhibition here because I don't think it'll ever be shown here. So you don't have to think of it. It's with your... pure love. <laughs> it's not your director's hat. Yeah. You're not yeah. putting it to work. No, no. It's, it's like I can be a grandparent and I can just dote on it without any repercussions. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for giving me this time and for this experience of visiting Glenstone. It's been great to have you here. Enjoy the rest of your walks today. I will. I'm not sure. You'll probably find me here tomorrow. Good. I missed my tomorrow. flight. <laughs> <laughs> So we're taking the trail around Glenstone. It's a huge campus. You walk in, there's the arrival hall. And Emily took me all around the pavilions, which was the expansion in 2018. I've just been to the gallery, which was the building that opened Glenstone in 2006. And now I'm walking in nature, as you can hear from the rustling leaves on the breeze. Past a wonderful Richard Serra. The idea is to slow down, which I'm not very good at, but it is calming. It also smells good. Thanks so much to Emily Rouse for that generous tour of Glenstone. Join us next episode. We'll be gathering our editorial advisors, Dina Hagag, Jay Sanders and Mia Locks, to talk with them about the show so far, what's been uncovered and what hasn't been said. That's next time on The Art World What If. This podcast is brought to you by Art and the editorial platform created by Schwartzmanand. The executive producer is Alan Schwartzman, who co-hosts the show together with me, Charlotte Burns of Studio Burns, which produces the series. Thank you.